Hello, this is Romp, a podcast with me, Murray, and each show I'll have a guest on to tell their tales of gay dating BG, before Grinder. From coming out to dating and finding love in an age before the smartphone, we'll have stories of cottaging, cruising and clubbing. The best date, the worst date, the weirdest and the one that got away. Join us as we talk and laugh about shagging in the 60s, sex in the 70s and being naughty in the 90s. I don't know what we did in the 80s. I don't think anybody had sex in the 80s. This podcast contains adult themes, so those of a nervous disposition should turn off now. In today's episode, we're going to be talking to Colin about what life was like for him in the 70s and 80s, whether it involves world in action or gay saunas, and we'll also be talking about number 37. Good morning, Marie. Good to see you. And do you love how you're getting on? I'm all right today. It's been a busy week, but that's great. And it's been a busy day. You've already telling me I can't do this, I can't do that. You need to I move know. this. Yeah, you know, kind of. That's the thing about being, you know, such a person who's around at the weekend for all these people who say, now we just need your help with this, that, and the other at the moment, just so that, you know, I'm going to be the bad dad who goes along to the car dealership that says, you don't want this, eat the muck. Yep. You want this one instead so that they'll knock money off and give a, a better a better deal. And don't buy all that add-on stuff. No. Like, what, well, warranty, I'd get a warranty, but not that kind of the – we used to sell as a new car. I shouldn't be telling you this. As a new car, we used to sell like a high-shine thing, diamond course, bright. Yeah. Yeah. And they go, oh, you put this on 500 quid. It used to cost us 50 quid, that. So. I know. Crazy. I know. And the worst thing is that, you know, you used to do the same when you were in the Rembrandt. It's like, I'll come back with you, but for 50 quid, I can put the high shine. <laughs> so did you go down the Rembrandt quite a lot then in your in your day? It was. Um, you have to remember, I moved to Manchester probably, I think it was about 1980, 1981, something okay. like that. So, you know, that gives you a, a length of time. And can I we ask uh, how old we were at that point? Is that approximate? I would have been 22, 23. Okay, we're about 10 years Ahead, I did it in the early nineties, nineteen ninety one right. at twenty one, twenty yeah. two. So we're yeah. we're ten years apart. Okay, fab. Yeah. So and at that time there weren't that many places to be able to go. So you had the Thompson's Arms, which yeah. is next to the bus station. Yeah. On, and for those uh, that don't, we are talking about Manchester actually. This yeah, you know, Sackville Street. Yeah, down Old Canal Street. But it didn't really yeah. exist as a gay village then at all, did it? No. No, it wasn't even a hamlet. No, it wasn't, was it? You know. It was, um, it was grim. It was grim in 1990. We loved it. We absolutely loved it. So there was the Thompson's Arms, and on, on the other end of the strip was the Rembrandt, and in between yeah. was Paddy's Goose, which is where all the, the lesbians went. Yeah, there were, and, and then, the uh, New Union was there as well. Yeah. Down and the then across the, across the road was Napoleon's or Naps, Naps. for sure. Wow, that's been there a long time, hasn't it? You know. And that was it. And then you had to mm. kind of troop all the way down to Deansgate oh, if wow. you wanted to go, because it was Heroes was the nightclub. On Deansgate? Yeah. Whereabouts on Deansgate was that? Um, it was um, where Waterstones is now in Deansgate, that little back road there. Yeah. You had the entrance to Heroes, which was in the basement, yeah. and you also had Slingsby's, which then became Bernard's Bar. So, you know, those were the choices that were available to you. Yeah. So because of that, everything was that much more intense and everybody knew each other, even though there were special nights that things happened on. So in Napoleon's, you know, you had the leather bar night. Because oh, I always um, thought that was just drag. The or... night. They varied their nights okay. in order to be able to up uh, their income. So, you know, if you could put on a specialist night for something... Absolutely. Then you put on a special snack for things, you know. So because the the gay scene is not just one type of person, is it? That's right. That's right. And so um, when I arrived in the eighties, um, there wasn't there weren't many options, um, and so that's where people would go. For someone who's come from the northeast of England, which is where I'm from, just having these three or four places on your doorstep was such a step up to other things that you had. Because in most of of uh, my teenage years, when I was out and about, you would get one place maybe up in Newcastle, which mm-hmm. on Sunderland 
meant that you had to get the bus or the train. Right. And you had to get get back early. And it tended to be a one night in the week option oh, really? where yeah. half a bar yeah. was um put aside for the gays, usually the back room. Yeah. Um and you know, so you'd be there on a Sunday evening between seven and ten, and that was your lot. So the idea of actually having dedicated full time LGBT spaces um, was a, an absolute revelation. So how did you, know, you, you were delighted to have? That. So if you're living up in the northeast and you're a young lad, <clears throat> excuse yeah. me, seventeen, eighteen, but how did you know these places existed? Because of course, you know, these days, smartphone, Google it, we all know where everything is. But how yeah. did you find out about there was somewhere well, in Sunderland to go? Um, I had uh, some friends that um, were already established on the gay scene. Um, and so they're the ones, so it really was word of mouth that you learned about where you could go and when they were open, when was safe and when wasn't safe. Um, and so, you know, that's when your heart was in your throat and it's yeah. like, oh my God, I'm off for the first time type thing. But how did you, you meet those through. people? Because you've come, you've, you know, I had some friends that were gay. I mean, to me, that's like, woo, we didn't have any gay friends kind of thing. I was the only person in the world kind of thing yeah. at that age. How yeah. did you, how did you get to that point? Well, I used to attend my local church and the curate there um, had a copy of Gay Times on the coffee table. Wow. So that was that was the clue, and he used to talk about <laughs> his wife's brother, yeah. who actually was one of the first people in the country to be diagnosed with HIV and die wow. from AIDS. So he and his wife um, already had uh, a very strong social circle um, of particularly gay men. Mm. Um, some of whom worked for Newcastle Friend, which was a support agency that was around for people. It was a telephone helpline, yeah. an introductory service. Um, and so that was the invitation to say, if you're going to share something. Wow, and that's... It's a safe space. Well, 86, 87 or something? Sorry, yeah. 76, because you're 10 years ahead of me. Sorry, 76, 77-ish. Yeah. Well, it would have been 78, 79 wow. was when that was going on. And in the church, that's yeah. that's quite – I never thought you were going to say something like that. That's, yeah. You know, the, there must have been some raised eyebrows at that magazine being there generally. Or do you think it was put out especially for you when you went in? No, Quick, no, no, no. Martha, no, get the no, gay no. times out. No, 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 no. It was there. And, and wow. the nice thing is that Jonathan, who was, who was the curate, would talk about other people – in the estates that uh, were in the patch for the yeah. church, you know, who were similar to myself, young people, feeling that they were their only one and not knowing who to speak to, not knowing that if he did, it would be safe and respected. And so, you know, kind of basically he was sending the message of, I know. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, Which is so amazing. Afraid. That's, yeah. you know. That's really good. So then you'd you'd find out that these club nights existed. I was in Hull in my verse coming out year, so we'd have Monday night in some yeah. old disco that it was so old it would even had an underlit dance floor. So we yeah. had a Monday and we got a Wednesday somewhere else at the Silhouette yeah. Club or something like that. That was all we had. Yeah. Tended to be a Wednesday evening or a Sunday evening. Yeah. Uh, the quiet nights of the week, basically. And that was it. That was your lot. So... By uh, the early 80s, a lot of my friends um, had their air levels and were off to university. Um, I had before GCSEs. Um, well, they were they were at O levels then. They weren't GCSEs then, were they? They were G they were GCSEs. No, they were. They didn't. Well, the GCSE no, didn't come in until 1988. No, they were the CSEs. CSEs. Four. Did you get? Yeah. Were they grade A to C? No, I I got four grade ones. Yes, yeah, so that's the O-level equivalent, isn't it? Of, of, a, of a C grade, <laughs> yeah. GCSE, you know. And so, so you were, you were university fodder. Yeah, no. I was not university fodder. But at the time, it was clear to me that in my household, my community, you either emigrated, which a couple of my brothers had done to Australia, yeah, 
um, you got a job somewhere else, which was very rare, or you got married and they were the only ways that you had to leave the family home. I uh, had got involved in a lot of youth and community work with the church. There was a project that was uh, called Root Groups, um, where people could come together to do community work in different parts of the country, but also form households together. I saw that as my pathway to be able to move on without needing to kind of explain, I'm a gay boy and I want to go and live the gay life. So, um, so could you tell your parents at this point you'd done the, you know, yeah. the curate well, had done that? I'd, I'd, I'd put out the hints and things, but um, wearing a frock to no- breakfast is that was that yeah. The there was there was nothing there was nothing formal done yeah. at that point, um, and so I packed me things, got on the bus to Birmingham because that was where the headquarters were, but we. Uh, me uh, and someone called Elaine had formed a bond. We were supposed to be a group of about six or eight people, but we formed a couple. Where was the head- uh, headquarters of who? Of uh, the Root Group organisation. Oh, okay. Uh, they had a big house that they operated out of in Birmingham, yeah. in Tipton. Um, and so they used to have what effectively were encounter group meetings. Yeah. So the deconstruct your personality, you cry your eyes out, and then, you know, from that very weak and vulnerable place, shove you in a room with four other people, and that was supposed to form the bonds that were unbreakable, you know. Mm, and me, being great. wide-eyed and innocent, not, kind of saw this coming. So what I used to do, because the idea that what they used to do was say, right, We'll have this circle. Someone will sit in the middle, and then you'll tell your story. And then the people who were sitting on the outside would ask deep and penetrating questions. No, not like yourself. And um, then you'd cry, um, and then it'd be like, but we love you anyway, and then move on to the next person. I had learned, having seen these things many years previously, it's like, be the first one, cry quickly, and then you're done. Rather and than building everyone, up. Well, can't you just, yeah. I thought you were going to say, I could see this coming. I just lied all the way through mine at the end. Oh, but you went first. Me. I went first. <laughs> and also because then everyone has to top where you come from. <laughs> so, you know, it's like, oh, he's done this, you know, and wept. What am I going to say? I've got to come up with something better. Something better. You know, what kind of things were people saying? Have you any idea now? Can't remember, but you know, kind of. It's the things that you know. Oh, I had my first drink when I was thirteen. How could I, Lord, protect me? Type of stuff. Yeah. You know, you know I once looked at a man's bum. Oh, you know, you <laughs> do whatever. Um, you were both of those, and that was the first thirty absolutely. seconds. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> so you know, wept a bit. People yeah. went, "Oh, that's terrible. We love you, really." It's like great. Back out the circle. Off we pop. And and like the the next one fell in is you kind of, you know, pick your teeth. Um but it was actually over the washing up that this this person, Elaine Graham, and I got talking. Um she was at University of Bristol at the time, and we just clicked. So all this formal stuff of sitting in the circle, cry rise out, Matt. We didn't need to do that. We found that politically, socially, we were on the same dynamic. And so by the end of the washing up, we both said, do you want to go on and do something? Yeah. And she said, you know, I'm looking at uh, being located in Manchester because there are things happening in Manchester I want to be a part of. And I wasn't thinking so much about where I wanted to be as knowing I couldn't be where I was. Yeah. So we went along for a visit. I kind of scoured the old... Let's look at the newspaper, the uh, the old gay times or gay news as it was then. Yeah. It's like, oh, Manchester's got things. Yeah, two things, three um, things we had. Three, three or four things. Yeah, uh, and it has a gay centre. A gay centre. A gay centre. Yeah, imagine um, that full of gays. That's right, thousands of them. <laughs> so, um, so from that, we decided that's a good thing to do, um, and. There was a, a, a church in Fallowfield that were looking for our group to come in and and uh, and work with them. 
and that seemed like a really good fit for us. Um, and so that began my Manchester adventure. So, you know, we were found a house, we settled in, and then I, I went down to the gay centre, joined Friend, which is the support organisation. Yeah. Um, and so I would be on the telephone. Um, and so you do some of the, you know, kind of end life awful for people, you yeah. know, and then you'd be the, you're the first person I've told this. And it's like, mm. welcome to the world awful. of gays. Yeah. Imagine how, yeah. how long it, how much it took to do, make that phone call. Oh God. Yeah. Yeah. And you get a lot of them where, where it was silent calls. Yeah. So I uh, developed the old banter. So I'd be there saying, so, you know, click, you know, tap the phone once for yes, twice for no. So how are things with you? Oh, yes, I've been out and about in Manchester. You'd love the place. Oh, my God. The streets are a bit gritty, but once you get into the Rembrandt, I mean, I know that the Lees, you have to say that the Lees beer tastes a bit like candy floss, but you'll get past that. And so is that something that you'd be interested in? And you get the one tap. Oh. And eventually people would start to, to open up and talk to you. But the main job really was to be that gateway for people mm. to come down, they'd meet you, you'd introduce them to a few other people and then they'd start to develop their own And so would you go and do the befriending bit first? We call it befriending now, don't we? Go and meet someone else and then bring them into the scene. Would you do that with them as well? Yeah. Yeah, wow. and then you'd launch them onto the merry way. And the thing was, even though you'd say you'd launch them onto the, their merry way, because it was such a small social setup, you always were meeting the same people. Yeah, and you know, so some of them would let on to you. Some of them became friends. Um, others were happy to go their own way, make their own ways, and you know, and that was great. The fact was that people had had that opportunity to be welcomed in, had someone who could stand with them at the bar for the first time, be the person that said, oh, my God, I actually said hi to someone. They said hi it's back. Both. I've got to, that <laughs> yeah. means I've got to sleep with them now. That's Absolutely. A look across well, the whole thing. Know, I'm not certain that's the right order, but, you know, yeah. <laughs> that's what I felt. I was like, oh, no, no, I'm not going to speak to anyone here. I'm stood here. No, it means I've got to sleep with you. It's just like... <laughs> And then never have, but there you go. So what yeah. What was, whereabouts in the world was the gay centre at that point then? It was on Bloom Street. Okay. Opposite um, what we now know as in New York. Um, and it was in a basement. Um, and shortly after that, um, the city council employed um, a women's worker and a gay men's worker. And so Paul Fairweather was the first person. Paul Fairweather, uh, yeah. Paul Fairweather. And so he was the person who helped um, develop the services um, and administered the place on, on a daily basis for the different support groups that were around. So, you know, and it was a an amazing opportunity. Uh, the city council themselves, it was part of their politics there was a lot of opposition, as you can imagine. That led to uh, a TV appearance. I think it was World in Action. I can't remember if it was one of them. Um, and they came to do an interview down at the Gay Centre talking about the funding for the centre. Um, and so I was one of the people who was who was there being interviewed and you had local councillors saying, it's not right. We're using ratepayers' money. For these gays. money for these... Deviants. Deviants. Yeah. Deviants. When really we should be focusing on on Manchester in bloom and 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 what have you. Um and so I'm there saying I pay rates. Mm. Um so why am I not entitled to have services also as part of my contribution to this community? I'm not just someone who takes out, I'm someone who puts mm. in. And the amount of money that is spent at that time on the gay centre was less than one-tenth of one percent of what they spend on knocking down a building and making a car park. Yeah. And what so, year? Are we still early 80s now? Have we moved? Early 80s. Yeah. Early 80s. So I rang your mum and dad and said, I'm on telly. Can you believe it? <laughs> I'm on telly. Rang, you actually rang and told them. Yeah. I suppose World in Action, there were only three channels at the time. So That's people right. would have seen it anyway, wouldn't they? So they're watching this behind the sofa as if it's like Doctor Who. You know, it's got to something like 
23. And it's like, he's not old. God, he's not been on. And then suddenly, ta-da! ta-da! I'm there, yeah. Um, so they're like, oh, my God. The phone rings. Like, it's our Colin on the telly! So they were just in a state of shock. I bet they were. And they were talking to me dad afterwards, and he said, your mum was just devastated. Because it's like, at that point, um, to be out and gay was was shameful. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they had no other reference points. Mm-hmm. There were no other people that they knew. So it was it was very difficult for them. And then he said, we've been to the market, we're coming home on the bus, and she's sitting there with a face on her. And he said, smile, though your heart is aching. Smile, though your heart is breaking. Keep smiling through. There's a world there for you. And I'm the one that's done that to them. So it's like, so you're saying I've broken a heart. But shortly after that, they had a phone call from the Auntie Ethel. Not Auntie Ethel. Auntie Ethel, who said, I've seen our collar on the, on the, on the telly, and you must be so proud of him because he's standing up and being his real self. And he spoke really well. And, you know, that's something that we really need to learn from. And you've brought him up to be this strong, independent person. So you should be very proud of him. Yeah. By the way, I've ever told you about our Barry. (laughs) (laughs) Not Barry. Yeah. And that was it. To their utter stunned amazement, all they got were people saying, you must be so proud. You know, must be so wonderful to know. And so that was their transformative point. Brilliant. Really. Um, and then they said, oh, my God, our Colin's been on, on the TV. This is to me brothers and my sister. And he's gay. He said, oh, yeah, he told us weeks ago, years ago. It's like, so we were Oops. the last to know. It's like, yes. Oops. Why were they the last to know? It's like, just think what you have just said. Oh, so yeah, and imagine what they'd so said. Transformative for them. Yeah, without that, without the people seeing you on the TV supporting them first, they would have been devastated had they only them know, wouldn't they? Actually, and they'd have gone through yeah. all kinds of trauma. Well, you know, because you know you're still living in the time when, if you were going to grow up gay, what were the reference points? Mm-hmm. John Inman. You know? um, but even even people like John Inman and, and Larry Grayson aren't aren't sexualized. No. They're not real gay men. But that's all we had, wasn't it? To be real gay men. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the things that we could look forward to is, you know, you'll get your complimentary raincoat and you don't wear anything underneath it. You go out into the parks at three in the morning and open it up and scare children. Um, (laughs) We've taken a turn. Where did this come from? Yeah. You're going, you're going to die a yeah. sudden lonely death, be bitter and twisted. Yeah. Uh, and if you work for the government, you'll betray them and run off to Russia. Yeah. And that's, and then be that's the only reference point. Yeah, yeah. They were the only reference points that they had to go on. God. Um, so the idea that you could be out and proud and live a good life was something that was something that they had to learn on their journey. Mm. Um, but these were the only okay. reference points you had as well. Yeah. So, you know, yeah, how did I, how did I that translate lucky. into life? Yeah, but I was lucky because I met the curate who mm. then gave me a, a different tag on what it meant to be your authentic self. Yeah. And that was okay to be. Um, and also to realise it's a part of who I am, but it's not the only part of who I am. Oh, I'm not sure. Um, I am. <laughs> and and so, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd been given that possibility to know that things could be different. Um, and, you know, you're talking about when did you know? I've never not known. Mm-hmm. I've never not known. And, um, you know... Barry, Ethel's son, he only lived at the end of the road. He was six weeks younger than me. 
So he and I used to have a lot of fun growing up together. Um, and so we've, we always knew that there was something unique to us that there didn't seem okay. to be amongst the rest of the family. Oh, that's nice. So we had, we were able to confide in each other as youngsters, but knew you just kept this away from everybody else because um, there wasn't, it wasn't something that you could talk about. And do we, because yeah, it wasn't 10 years later for me a lot, but how did we know it wasn't something we talked about? You know, was the general homophobia around, do you think? Was it you'd seen and heard things? Well, not just that, um, because, you know, Stranger Danger was still around and about. And it's always the man, you know, in the raincoat in the raincoat. who preys on little children. Yeah, which yeah. equals gay, doesn't it? Paedophilia yeah. equals gay. Yeah. Yeah. For a long time. Um, and if there were any stories in the, in the newspapers, um, it was about stars who'd been caught cottaging. Yeah. Um, so I remember, you know, when Peter Wingard, who played Jason King, was done for cottaging. What like, programme's that? Is that like the Persuaders? Or Jason something? King. Is that Jason actually the name King. of the show? Yeah. <laughs> he was in Department S, and then he was in his own spin-off show called right. Jason King. Yeah. Um, so he was this, you know, super suave, sophisticated um, gentleman spy. And you took one look at him in his 70s outfits yeah. with his bouffant hair and his porn star moustache. And now you'd be looking at it and going, oh, please. Why didn't anyone guess? Yeah. Um, so, but those were the, the only reference points, again, that we had were um, the, the either the kiss and tell or something salacious has happened, which is beyond the pale and just goes to show that these people can't be trusted. Yeah. They're not normal. You know, not normal. Not like me and, and they and, and they're living in men's toilets. Oh, yes. And, you know. And so that's where things that's where things happened. Um, and because it was considered an aberration, um, for me and I think also for Barry, you kind of told there is a point when you'll get a girlfriend, you'll get married, you'll have kids, and that's your future. And that's how it was for everyone around us. So it's like you're waiting for those things to yeah. kick in. Yeah. But in the meantime, I'm going to go off and play doctors and doctors or nurses and nurses <laughs> with so-and-so, you know. It's like people would say to me, you're really hard to find you and so-and-so in hide-and-seek. And it's like, yeah, because we weren't playing hide-and-seek. We were seeking what we were seeking what other people were hiding. <laughs> so, and, and that's how it was, yeah. you know. So when it finally becomes crystal clear that this phase is permanent. Yeah, it's not going away, is it? Ain't going away. Um, I was in that lucky place to know that there was someone, um, A, who was straight, um, but had understanding and compassion, who was willing to listen, and then be mm. that gateway to me that I then became for other people. That's amazing. Yeah. Um, so in that sense, I, I was immensely lucky. Um, but the other thing that used to happen is as a, as a youngster and at school, you know, you could see people um, forming these relationships in your school and that. Um, and... I couldn't share what was happening to me because the risks for any mm. child at school, you know, it's like it's an incredibly cruel place. And those who say, you know, these are the best years of your life, it's 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 yeah. like you selling a car, you know, with a, with a, with a five hundred pound shine on it. It's like, don't you believe it? Yeah. But they, they were good years, though, but there was the potential for bullying, wasn't there? And I got a little bit bullied, but and so there were difficult teenagers for me. But the earlier years, I had a ball. I think overall my school years were great, but, yeah, you couldn't come out. There was no support for that kind of thing, was there? I was small. I was scientific. I was a nerd. Oh, okay. I wore glasses. 
you know, I was Walter in the Dennis the Menace comics, you know. It's like, I was done for. And then to be gay on top of it, yeah. I mean, you know, you got all the slurs you, anyway. You had every single point to be bullied by the four, didn't you? You know, I was, and I don't know how it would have been for you, but when we lined up for sports, I was the one, you know, they Last would have one picked. Picked. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, you know, if there was a cockroach, they would have picked the cockroach ahead of me, you know. <laughs> I was always, in playing football, I was always in defence, in the team that, you know, the best team because the ball was always at the other end of the pitch. Yeah. And so I'd be standing there trying to pull me shirt over my knees because it was bloody freezing. And, you know, that was it. Um, as it was, I did develop some really good friendships in my latter years at school with people who were of a, a like mind, mm. not not a like experience. I don't think any of them were yeah. gay. Um, but, you know, so I went through those those years of puberty, falling in love about four times a day. <laughs> um, and you just could never, I could, there was not an opportunity to speak to anyone about it. I did fancy um, a games teacher, though. Did you? Oh, yeah. He was a rugby player. I've always had a oh. thing about rugby players ever since. Well, you know, but also, Mary, this was my first time, you know, going to senior school and being shown the showers. Yeah. Like, God. What? Yeah. Like, yeah, you go in there, you take all your clothes off with other people. As if it's completely normal. And it's like, what? Yeah. Sorry, you know, it's like I, I came from a home where, you know, no one saw anything. Mm. Yeah. Um. And you know, so it was just taken as red, like you will be naked in the shower with other people. And it's like, yeah. so. And, and try, then, and then you know, trying not to look. Trying not to look. Everyone's trying not to look. And then, but of course, you've got the boys who are going, I've got a big one now. Yeah, yeah. And I remember one of them turning around to me and saying, how come the gay boys got a moustache and pubes? It's just, you know, it's not fair. And uh, it's like, I don't know. God. It just happens. Um, so I'm fairly certain that there were, you know, there was probably a lot of testosterone and opportunity, mm. but you know, it was it was too scary. It, the it, risks. Yes, yeah. it took you either found out or you were, uh, or you took some great big personal steps to come out in an environment like that. And yeah. you just, yeah, I people people thought I was gay at school, and there was a lad who I was. I was having kind of a relationship with kind of relationship with outside of school and then he yeah. wrote a letter to me um everlasting love all this kind of thing as a teenager it was in yeah. my back pocket and someone stole it out of my back pocket and it was around the school oh. in about 10 minutes yeah so yeah so i was outed at school but i, I was able to deny because it, it was written to me i denied yeah. it because yeah. i wasn't in that position no but then he failed all his o levels because of the the bullying and the stress that he got from it absolutely absolutely you know, and so as I said to you, when people say it's the greatest days of your life, mm. it, it for for people, for me, I'll own it. For me, it was potentially death yeah. in a sense, yeah. socially, everything else. Because you know, if it, if it was known, then it would have got back to the parents and the school, and you still have to go to school. So it would just yeah. stay with you. And you yeah. knew other people in the school who got a name or a reputation for something that's put with them. And there wasn't anything you could do about that. No. It, it stayed with you. It, it was, was every man for himself, wasn't it? You're listening to The Romp Podcast. If you'd like to get involved and have a story to tell, you can email me at podcast at romp.media. Yeah. So we've so we've finished school. We've, we've moved to Manchester, and you're in yes. Manchester in the in the early eighties. We're not far from actually AIDS hitting us, really, are we? And that's and that hit that particularly the Rembrandt. That hit the Rembrandt quite hard, didn't it? Into the in the early eighties and into the nineties, it was devastating. Mm. And you know, if you were anything like me, I was on. Um, Manchester friend, and he'd start to get phone calls from people saying, I've heard about this disease. Mm. It's over in America, but it's known as a gay plague. A gay plague. And so by that point, I already knew someone who died. Wow. Uh, which was my curate's brother-in-law. Mm. So it was his wife's brother who was one of the first ones mm. to die. And then THT was set up, yep. Terence Higgins Trust, 
Um, and so you had people from Terence Higgins Trust coming out to brief all the different national care helplines with what we then knew, which was very little. Yeah. Very little. There was a death sentence when there was no treatments, was there? So yeah. was, you know. And at that point, there were no real tests. We just knew yeah. you had people who were becoming ill. Um, and when they became ill, they didn't have long to live after that. Mm. Yeah, it was too late by then, um, wasn't it? Yeah. Because there was no cure, there was no treatments for anything. No. God. Um, and so um, Healthy Gay Manchester was set up, which then became Manchester AIDS Line and ultimately now is George House Trust. Yeah. Um, and they were recruiting volunteers. But at the time, I was very much involved in the Gay Centre. Um, eventually, I, I joined George House Trust. Eventually, I became chair of George House Trust. Um, but at the time, it, it was still a case of trying to introduce new people. But everyone was terrified. Absolutely. You know. You know. Yeah, I remember. It was the gay plague. Yeah. Um, we assumed it was some kind of sexual transmission. And, of course... The powers that be, the James Andertons and the others, you know, but there we were swirling around in the cesspit of our own creation. Indeed. That, that was a 86, 87 or something, was it that? Yeah. You know, and, you know, people were talking about us being sent off to an island so we could get on with it, <laughs> you know. But at least we protect everybody else. I'm thinking, yes. what's this fantasy island, yeah. you know? Yeah. It's the plane, it's the, the plane. plane. Do you remember that? Yeah. yeah. Jumbo jets with the people kind of coming in. You know. Millions, but then you, then you'd have to have round. Then everybody would have to have been out and and been rounded up. So it's like, yeah. it, not as if everyone was out at that point. You couldn't identify us, could you? No, no. God. Well, most of us. And you and you all you always knew that the island was at the end of a railway line, which had really nice showers yes. for you. Yes, indeed. That's what they were saying. Yeah is, you know, let's find a place where these people can either die mm. or we can look after them in the beds until they're dead. Mm. And by look after them, mean lock them up and forget about them. Yeah. Um, and so sex equal death. And just watching how this disease devastated what was a happy, thriving population of people who were just busy celebrating being their unique and authentic selves. And yet we're getting all this stuff about, you know, you can't drink from the same cup, you can't mm. touch the same towel. Does it sound familiar? Mm. Does it sound like anything we've been through in the last three couple years, of years, years, you know? Yeah. This idea that, oh, it's your job to protect everybody else, and if you don't follow the rules, you'll kill people. Mm. Very familiar. Mm. Very familiar. So for anyone who kind of wonders what it was like, it was like to go through that at the time, you've been through it. Yeah. You were but, told it. But didn't just relate to everybody. So we're all in the same boat. It was one specific group. That's right. So, you know. Yeah. God. Yeah, it was. they were horrible. To, so how did you do dating in a, with that hanging over you? Because even in the 90s when I came out, it was still there. We still had it massively because we had to because it was yeah. still big. But how did you do it in the 80s? Well, different people did it in different ways. Because by 1983, I'd met my partner. Oh, so this, um, this podcast's over then, love. I know. 83? Yeah. Wow. And you know, initially, he was someone who I introduced as part of a friend into the gay scene. He developed his own social cir circle. Yeah. So as I said, you're still encountering people because it's a small scene. Yeah. But he decided, he then told me later, that I was going to be the one for him forever. Oh. So bless. he then put a plan of action into play to kind of come and get me. But because you couldn't, you, know, you couldn't phone up, you couldn't email and text it was yeah. it was a kind of you had to bump into someone or have their yeah. landline to phone them on, didn't you? I tried, but you know, kind of, you didn't have to hunt very far to find people mm. because they were all in one place. I tried. If they went every you weekend, know. though, you had to be out every weekend, or well, you know, or the also, risks, the risks of you never meeting. Oh, no, it's like no, sliding doors. This 
he was cunning because what he would do is <laughs> ring up the gay centre and find out when oh. I was on duty. Oh, I so see. he knew when I would be going out to the pubs it, and clubs to bring in new people. There's a name for people like that. Mm. People get done so, for that kind of thing yeah, now. He had a plan. He had he a plan. Um, but in terms of where I met people, you see, I'm a firm believer. I don't know about you. I'm a firm believer that we've all got a gift, a, a gift about how you can connect with other people. Yeah. Um, the two things that I've developed, uh, one is I can be a listener. And I learned how to listen because as a teenager, if you listened to other people, it meant that they could share stuff with you that they didn't feel safe sharing with other people. But it also means that you didn't have to talk. <laughs> mm, I couldn't possibly comment on that myself. Yeah. Um, and I learned that um, I could chat and and I had a bit of a sense of humour. So those were the things that worked in my favour. Um, and I used to go on a lot of conferences. So I'd be there on a weekend conference and, you know, kind of the bionic eye would be going around just to see. And you, that's how I was making connections. And because you were away from home and you were in dorms or whatever, then hookups became possible. Oh, I don't know because... how you dare. The risk of getting beaten up for me was too much to say anything like that. Oh, you know, by the time, by the time it was like kind of, are we sharing a sleeping bag tonight? You know, you'd already done the, the what you needed. To <laughs> we know. used to in the corner, bent over, going, looking backwards, going, "Hi, boys," like that or something. Oh, you know, and also because I was, I was by that point going on these conferences as the out gay man. Right. Oh, so you, your reputation preceded you. That's right, you know. So anyone kind of catching the eye, they knew what they were in for. Um, but I would just sit and chat to them, you know. Yeah. And I remember being on one conference, um, and um, there was a, a a guy there. I was in the conference, and he stood up to speak as Scott from Glasgow, and it was like sweet mystery of life. At last, I found you. He looked like Trevor Eve, a young Trevor Eve in his shoestring days. And it's like, <laughs> you know. And so, and he was in the boys' brigade. So we're all sitting around the tables. And so I'm about half a mile away from him. At least that's how it felt. And people knew I fancied him. So the next thing you know, there's, do you know those little games that you used to play where it's a, a box with all these different pieces in that are out of order and you have to slide them around. Oh, the, up, just like a flat, the picture. a flat thing, yeah. up, down, left, right kind of thing. That's right. You used to love them with one missing yeah. in the corner so you could move them That's all right. Yeah. My friends the did kid, that. The kids were all start, no, They all started swapping places and saying, oh, Colin, would you mind just sitting here because I want to talk to someone? <laughs> and then suddenly the only space available was the one next to him. Oh, funny and that. So, we got chatting and he said, oh, I'll come and see you later for a chat. And I said, okay. Rushed back to the room I was in, you know. So, oh, what? It's made, drab made room. the bed. Drab room. Had this piece of fabric, I think it was a handkerchief or something, that I draped over the, over the table lamp just to kind of create some ambience. Then realised, actually, it's starting to smoke. Get that off. <laughs> By a risk. So he arrived at the room and we're going chit-chat, chit-chat. And I'm thinking, this is going in the right direction. Then there was a knock on the door. And it was one of his mates saying, oh, I didn't know where you were. And I understood that this was the place to be tonight. Oh. So his mate came in. He said, I'll see you later. It's like, okay. So I'm there with the mate thinking, cock blocker. So... I'm looking at him and thinking, things are happening here, so do I, don't I? Anyway, the next thing you know, it's about half an hour later, there's a knock on my door again, and it's the original guy saying, it's a bit boring out there. Is the first bloke still here? No, no, the first, this was the first bloke coming back. Oh, God, I'm confused now. I thought this was the, I thought the the new bloke had come in was the one who stayed and the other bloke left. 
The original? Yes, I tried. Oh, right, the okay. One, the one I fancied had left. Yes. His mate was still in the room. Yeah, so what happened chat, there? Chat. Nothing. <laughs> nothing. I'm just like kind of full of all this kind of lust and love. Yeah. Thinking. Um, and then there's another knock on the door, and it's and it's it's a Trevor Reeve guy. So, so there's three of you? Yeah. And at which point it's like, says to the other one, I think so-and-so was asking for you. Were they? Right. Sorry, but I'll see you later. Oh. So the one who, the cock blocker, vanished off. The door closed and we're sitting next to each other. And I said, you know, you're almost close enough to kiss. And he said, how close is that? I said, this close. Oh. So the next morning we go down to breakfast together. All my friends like, I go up to Glasgow to see him, thinking this is going to be, you know, a sweet mystery of life. Meet his mother, who says, yeah, and he's going to be a dad in two weeks. <gasps> wow. So wow. He, he was the one that got away. Wow, that's amazing. And, the, you know, the sad thing is now I know that, you know, it was me that then put the block on that. Because I was still of the mind of, well, you know, you're going to be a dad, you've got a family. Um, I can't be the other person in this relationship. But who knows? Wow. And do we know any idea where he is today or what happened beyond that? Oh, I do. I do. But that's for me to know. (laughs) Brilliant stuff. But as I said, it was mainly through conferences and that because as I said I think everyone's got a gift everyone has a way to make that connection with someone and mine was about getting to know people having a chat listening to the stories and building that rapport that relationship and you know that never worked in the nightclub you know by this time places like high society had opened up so if you went in there like the chances of you actually listening to a conversation mm-hmm. were next to nothing. Yeah, it wasn't about that, was it? And if you ever turned to someone and said, So, do you want to tell me a live story? It's like, you just want to get in your knickers, don't you? <laughs> so, it was the nightclub scene was never going to work for me. Mm. It, it's all the relationships that I entered into were because I got to know people, yeah. really. Um, and I'm not saying that there weren't. You know, brief encounters, you know, you can get to know someone in an hour or so, but it still required me to kind of do that little chat. Yeah. You know, have a bit of fun, tell a few funny stories or whatever. That's the way that I made my connection with people. A bit of charm. The idea of, yeah, the idea of just, you know, kind of what you're doing later. And, you know, all those all those things that you could, you know, those really awful chat-up lines that are supposed to work so well. You know, what's your temperature? Because I think you're a bit of hot stuff or whatever. And, you know, it's like they're never going to work for me. No. Um, your 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 knickers would look great on my floor or something. Is, is that's that, right. I see, yeah, they don't work for me either. You know, things like, you know, do you fancy a meal? How about breakfast? <laughs> no. Kind of, kind of loan you 10p so you can ring your mum and say you're not coming home tonight or whatever. It's like, you know. <laughs> No, but they've lost. But, I think they're lost now, aren't they? Because no one goes, does that kind of thing anymore. It's all you look at the cock, you go, "That's yeah. a decent cock." I'll go around to your house, love. I think. Yeah, but I would never the, one, the, the one story that I think you'll love. This is before I met my partner, um, and I, by that point, I was living just near Main Road. Um, by the, what was then uh, Manchester City football yeah. ground. So I was with someone who, again, was interested in me, and I'm like kind of, oh. Um, so he'd come round for something to eat, and it was during the Moss Side riots. Yeah, you forget about those early 80s. So there I am, and thinking, it's time for him to go, because he needs to get his bus home. So I'm doing the wind-up, and, you know, kind of, he's wanting to stay. I'm thinking, no, thank you. So... I open the front door and a car explodes in front of me and these rioters run past. There's there's a police van with coppers hanging out the back with the battens. Wow. So he comes back into my house 
rings his mum and says, I won't be home tonight because there's a riot outside. And his mum's going, any excuse? <laughs> I know what you mean. He says, no, no, there's a car. It's burning out there. And so... You were stuck with him. another ex. Yeah. So, you know, kind of, that's the one who stayed. Not the one who, <laughs> the one who got away. Oh, God. So, you've you know, basically, you've been together 40 odd, 40 years then about now. It's 40 years wow. next year. Oh, well done. That's yeah. a, an unusual thing on the gay scene as well, isn't it? Did you ever watch... Um, oh, no, I've forgotten his title. Queer as Folk. Folk. Yeah. Queer Did you ever watch Folk. Queer as Folk? Because in there, there was a line, waiting for the next Wait. one, the, you know, the Wait, next Wait. one might yeah. be the one, so I'll go for yeah. another one kind of thing. I'm not doing that very I'm, well. I have a story for you. So, Russell T. Yes. Um, who actually lived next door to a really good friend of mine. Um, and so, <laughs> this friend was saying to me... Um, yeah, Russell would come round for dinner in Wally Range with them. And now as he watches Russell T shows, he says, I told him that. Oh, brilliant. Um, but I digress. They're recording the Canal Street scenes for Queer as Folk. Yeah. So everyone's been invited down. You know, you're there on set until three in the morning or whatever. And so various of my friends were there. I was, I was on a conference in London, so I couldn't attend. Um, I have a, a a cruel line that I say to some people, which is, you know, you never made it into queer as folk, but they did kind of cut you into uh, walking with dinosaurs and things like that. But there was a friend of mine who you know, thought he was going to be in it. So he uh, tells everyone, you have to watch, because we were all there. There'll yeah. be a Canal Street scene, yeah. and I shall be there yeah. in this brand-new gay programme. So he worked at the bank, he told everyone at the bank, all the managers, tune in, we're all sitting there with our cup of coffee or our breaker, because that's what we used to drink then. Um, yeah, kind of breaker. First, yeah. First episode of Queer as Folk. So there's the 15-year-old being rimmed On by... national telly? By... By... <laughs> by oh, God. And yeah. he's like, oh, I've told everyone at the bank to watch this. <laughs> he was off work for a wee. He couldn't face them. And did he actually appear in the end? No. <laughs> no, only one of us was in it. And that was, you know, kind of bumming a cigarette off someone else. And yeah. It was like, you know, a five second clip. I need to talk to you about a section oh. called How I Got My Lottery Numbers. So, very sadly, in the early 90s, I recorded every single one of my dates and wrote, right. and wrote them all down. This is, mm -hmm. you know, there was no internet, there was no telly. Well, there was a telly, black. not that bad. The colour of the book is black, which it's I'm it, glad to see. It is, but it's not quite a little black book, but they're all in here. So, it's a diary of... of, of the diary's 94... But then I've gone back. Oh, it started August '93, and then I've gone back and I've I've um, annotated them all. So it's the first forty-nine by chance. And when right. when lottery numbers, when the lottery first came out in '93, '94, I was like, "How am I going to choose my six lottery numbers?" So yeah. I went back to my what we know as a fucker fax and chose yeah. the six best shags out of it. Yeah. So and they became lottery numbers. But in this game, I'm going to ask you to. Um, Give me a number between 1 and 49, and right. then I will tell you if it's a lottery number and if not. But then I will also tell you who it was and see if I can remember what the story was. Okay. 37. 37 isn't, um, isn't a lottery number uh, that I chose, but 37 begins with J. So now I have to go back. Where did, oh, do you know, how did this system work for me in 1994? <laughs> where, where is Jade now? Do I have to go back to the... Oh, so I've gone back to the beginning section now. So in the alphabetical section at the front, K, L, J. Oh, uh, 37. Oh, was a bloke called John. Yeah. This was in um, 19, September 1994 in the gay sauna in, in uh, Berry. Oh, oh! He didn't score very well. He's got three fives now. I can't remember. He used to get three marks. I don't know what uh -huh. they all were. So he got three fives, and um, me and a mate went all the way to Nero's sauna up in in Bury. Oh my god! On a Saturday night, we had um, in my little two CV, and we're sitting yeah. around in the, in the jacuzzi, and we were just like, "Ooh, 
every man looking at us. <laughs> and uh, we had a whale had a whale of a time because and saunas were a, a big, quite a big thing back then. There was nowhere else to go, was there? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember I went with a friend to a sauna in Manchester, and I'm sitting in the jacuzzi, and my friend says to me, "That guy was giving you the eye. You know, he was really up for it." I'm thinking, I didn't have my glasses on. <laughs> Couldn't see, really I couldn't, you couldn't, I couldn't see, a, see thing. a thing. Yeah, you know, he could have, he could have been standing there in his raincoat, wearing his cheaper smarties, and I still wouldn't have yeah. known what was going on. Yeah, so it didn't work for me. Things like that. No, well, I didn't need well, glasses back then, so it was, you know. But so yeah. we met in a pool in a jacuzzi. Then you go into the private restrooms, don't you? Which is you a, do. Oh, just basically a rubber covered sheet um, mattress in a in a darkened room. Yeah, so yeah. I got to know John. Well, I know, well. I know. Do. Um, Outreach at Northwood Sauna, um, and you know, it's one of the biggest venues in the country now. Wow. Um, so, but I'm there, fully clothed, sitting in the foyer, and you know, people will be sitting with you, having this little chat about their health, and you're asking them, you know, is there something that you need to tell me about? And meantime, from the upper floors, you can hear this. Oh, yeah, again. Oh, Mark. That didn't happen in Nero's. <laughs> None of that. Thank you very much. You went on the wrong day. I did. I did. I went on a Saturday night. So in the, in in September. How very strange. September nineteenth. I, I will share with you another tale that I've got permission to tell, which is um, about. You now we've we've mentioned before about toilets, mm-hmm. and there was a friend of mine who was getting a few phone calls. So, again, this is before the Tinternet, but yes. it just got into the, the era of the mobile phone. Okay. The Vodafone uh, you've so dialed has not responded. It may respond yeah. if you try again. That's right. So he was getting calls and saying, I've seen you, I've seen your advert. Oh, yes. And it's like, what? It's like, I've seen your advert. So he rings another friend of him and says, have you written my number on a toilet wall? And I think it was at the Culhern in London. Wow. It's like... A busy yes, old I cottage. Did. Yeah. Yes, I did. It's a lot of fun, isn't it? It's like, how dare you? How dare you? So he rushed down to the Culhern, looked, and there's his number saying, you know, for a good time, you know, with your legs at the ceiling, contact, and there's his number. And he said, I couldn't believe it. He'd actually written my number onto the toilet wall in the Colhern without my permission. I was so shocked. I only answered three of the people who got in touch. But (laughs) (laughs) so yes, things that people will get up to. Now remember, you know, as a a kid, you know, you go into these loos, and it was either kind of death to whoever because you weren't in the right football team, Mm. or sometimes you would see these little stories with you know, kind of with comments and all the rest of it. Yeah. So, it was, you know, it, it was their version of, of, you know, kind of tweets and replies, yeah. you know, for a good time. That yeah. underneath would be, don't think of it as that much of a good time. Or, well, what's your number then? And there'd be a thread, <laughs> a thread in the toilet. <laughs> God, I never really went in, in toilets and did that. I never, and I've never found a number on the back of a wall. I thought it could be, you know, leading down a wrong path and you end up being beaten Absolutely. up or something. Well, I think my one experience, and this wasn't a sexual experience, I was in London and I needed to to do a number two. I was desperate. But, you know, I'm a classy, classy guy. So I went to the um, the National Portrait Gallery thinking they're bound to have nice loos in there. So meandered through, got to the toilets in the National Portrait Gallery. Could you get into a cubicle? No, there are people on the floor looking underneath the doors. There are bangings, and, and I'm like, I'm desperate. I need a poo. And by the time I finally got got in there, I had to put everything on the floor to make certain that no one interrupted oh, me. And yeah. you, know, you got your finger in the hole in the wall. Just in case. <laughs> the like, toilet roll. Yeah. I need, I need to use this for the purpose to which it was intended. Yeah. I was telling another friend who lived in London, he said, oh, yes, it's notorious at the uh, the National Portrait uh, Gallery. You know, you should know better than to try and use a men's loo in London for, for its yeah. genuine purposes intended. Yeah. That's why metal plates exist now on these walls Absolutely. between cubicles, don't they? Yeah. You see all kinds of things peering at you. Yeah. Absolutely. Good yeah, Lord. All things pushed through. Things, things pushed through. That takes a lot of drilling, that hole, though, to make that, that happen. It does. 
God. And if ever, if ever you get the chance, then, you know, as a piece of nostalgia, you can go for a book called The Glory Hole Murders. <laughs> that was a nice ending. Is that just? <laughs> In all good booksellers. Yeah, I don't think it's Agatha Christie, but no, it's there. No. Does it, it doesn't involve any garden shears, does it? I don't think so. No, I don't think so. I'm not ready. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you'd like to get involved or have any comments to make, email me at podcast at romp.media. <laughs>